0: You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today I'm joined by David Gunkel to talk about USS Callister, the first episode of season four of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2017. David Gunkel is professor of media studies at Northern Illinois University, and he specializes in, among many other things, the ethics of emerging technology. He's the managing editor and co-founder of the International Journal of Zizek Studies and the co-editor of the Indiana University Press Series in Digital Game Studies. David is an extremely active international speaker and a wildly prolific scholar who has, in only the last two decades, published nine separate monographs on the philosophy of technology, internet studies, digital ethics, and AI robot ethics. And I'll provide links to all of those in the episode notes for this podcast. But I do want to highlight two of them right here at the beginning. I've used sections of his 2012 book entitled The Machine Question, Critical Perspectives on AI Robots and Ethics, for several years in my philosophy of technology class to great effect. And then just this past year, I began assigning his 2018 book, Robot Rights, which was also a hit. David's books are smart, timely, carefully argued and compelling, but they're also fun and provocative, which makes them imminently teachable. So I highly recommend David's work to any listeners interested in getting their feet wet with tech ethics, but especially to my colleague listeners in academic philosophy who might be looking to punch up their syllabi. So David and I follow each other on Twitter and we were supposed to have met for the first time last May, at the Ethics of Big Data conference where we were both scheduled to present, but coronavirus. So this will be my first actual conversation with David and I can't wait to dig into Black Mirror's USS Callister with him. Welcome, David.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. And it's really nice to finally meet you, at least virtually. Uh, too bad we couldn't have done it uh, in a face-to-face physical setting, but it'll be on the horizon, I hope.
0: Yes, yes. And and next time when we get around to meeting at the big data conference, we can you know, just say we're old friends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. We've done this before.
0: Okay, so David, like I do in all of these episodes, I ask my guest right at the beginning of the episode to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to be talking about. So could you summarize USS Callister?
1: Sure. Before I get into the plot of it, though, I should say two things by way of introduction. Um, It's a unique episode insofar as it's comedic and it's designed specifically to be a comedy of sorts. And secondly, it's a Christmas episode. So the fact that we are recording this in the middle of December, apropos, given the calendar, (laughs) but that's weird for this kind of series to have a Christmas special. Doctor Who does it all the time. But in Black Mirror, this was a rather unique occurrence. So I I think that also is worth noting. So the USS Callister episode is about a disaffected chief technology officer who has developed this platform called Infinity, which is a kind of massively multiplayer online role-playing game that uses immersive uh, technologies to create a virtual reality experience. And you live out a fantasy where you are commanding a starship and moving through space. And uh, this guy, although very successful in his uh, work, and his name is uh, Robert uh, Daly, I should say, so we, we know who he is. So Robert Daly is a very successful programmer, creates this incredible piece of code and this platform, and then launches a company. And the company is run by a friend of his who is the chief executive officer. Unfortunately, Robert is not much liked by his colleagues. He's a social outcast, but doesn't really get along with people. And what he does in order to make up for his lack of social contact in the real world, does what all good gamers do, moves his social interactions online. And instead of playing the game as it was designed, he creates a mod. And the mod that he creates is a emulation or simulation of a special TV show that he liked from years ago called Space Fleet, which is, as you can already anticipate, going to be a kind of campy parody of Star Trek. So he creates a mod of his game that looks very much like a Star Trek kind of experience. And the only other really interesting thing that um, you need by way of setup is that the people populating his mod environment are his co-workers, but not willfully. He actually does a sort of digital upload of his coworkers, and then they are there to serve his whims. And so the story follows him living out this alternative experience in his a fictional world where he is rather uh, sadistic to his co-workers as a way of getting back at them for excluding him. And it's the story of how the coworkers, in the form of the avatar in the game take control of the situation and strike back, having a kind of a sentient avatar uprising, if we could say it that, and take uh, revenge on him. Also, unique in the Black Mirror universe, it has a happy ending. The avatars actually win. And the evildoer is banished from any other activity in this world or even in the real world from that point forward.
0: One of the things that I'd like to talk about first is that this episode is using something that actually is used in other Black Mirror episodes, which is this idea of a digital copy of a human consciousness. It's important to say that it's a copy because, of course, the original human consciousness from which this copy is made still exists in the IRL world and then this copy exists as it does in White Christmas and also perhaps also in Black Museum the episodes White Christmas and Black Museum it the copy exists in a digital world or a virtual world however these are as you say fully sentient consciousnesses. And I'm just curious, since you work so much on moral questions about the moral agency and the moral patiency of robots, intelligent robots, do you see a kind of major difference in asking those same questions about these cookies or digital copies, virtual digital copies, than the kinds of questions that you would ask about sentient machine intelligences?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's about a certain division between what is a representative copy and what is a sort of standalone sentient entity. So in game studies, we've been talking about avatar abuse from the time of the Lambda Moo experience in the rape in cyberspace. And that whole idea was what are the ethics of abusing an avatar when the avatar is controlled by a human user sitting behind a computer. This sort of takes that one step further and says, okay, now what if the avatar is its own standalone creature with its own set of experiences and knowledge that is separate from the human consciousness from which it was derived? And I think that's where a lot of interesting questions in this episode really derive from this ability to cross over that line that separates our gaming experience from a science fiction form of this experience as it's presented in the Black Mirror episode. And I think that then raises a great deal of questions about artificial life and how a constructed artificial entity would have relationships to us and what would be our responsibilities in the face of these other kinds of creatures. Again, that question is an old question. It's as old as Frankenstein, right? Um, The idea that you could create artificial life and then the artifact that you create speaks to you and requires you to respond in a certain way. And in the case of Robert Daly, his response is pretty bad. He uses his creatures uh, in a way to appease his desires to act out his frustrations on his co-worker.
0: So what do you think is significantly different about the kind of criticism that someone might make of a virtual online player like Robert Daly, who is just, you know, abusing avatars? And what actually happens in this episode, which is a virtual online player that is abusing what appear to be, or could be argued, are both moral agents and agents with moral (laughs) patiency. Yeah, this is really interesting,
1: because on the one hand, when we had the Rape in Cyberspace event, which happened way back when in the early days of the internet...
0: Maybe, um, could you just, just in case there are listeners who don't know, know, yet,
1: Lambda Moo was an early MMO, but it was all text-based. So it was technically, it was a massively multiplayer experience that was all done in text. So there was no 3D anything. All the avatars were textually described. All the activities were done on keyboard and described in text form. So it was online uh, community theater of abilities of people all over the world to connect. And it was modeled on a house. Pavel Curtis, who created it, used his house in California as the model for the virtual environment that was Lambda And the idea was there were no rules. You could just go there and do whatever you wanted. Of course, as you can imagine, some people decided to push the limits of that. And there was a avatar named Mr. Bungle who used a little sub-program called the Voodoo Doll, which allowed him to take control of other characters' avatars. And he used that to make them violate themselves or make the avatar violate itself. And the users of those avatars could only watch in horror as they saw things scroll across their screen saying absolutely disturbing and disgusting things about what they were doing in avatar form. And it was called a Rape in Cyberspace. And I do have to recognize that there's been a great deal of debate about that use of word because rape is an underreported crime in real life. And people thought that Julian Dibble, who wrote the Rape in Cyberspace article for the Village Voice, was taking some liberties by using that term, but it was actually the people in Lambda Moo who were violated who used that term. So he uh, often points that out, but it is a situation of loss of control. And this is loss of control over one's avatar. Now, the way that Mr. Bungle, whoever this person was, and we think it was a group of people in a dorm floor at a university in New York, the way that they excuse what they did is they said, we're not hurting anybody. We're just playing with avatars, and that doesn't really create any harm. And that is often the way that we excuse this kind of behavior. We say, these aren't real things. These aren't really objects that have feelings or are sentient, and therefore we can abuse and use and do whatever we want to them and not really worry about it because they don't really feel anything. The episode, I think, crosses the line that says, what if they did feel something? And what would that mean? One way to respond to that question is to say, at that point, yeah, you'd have to be worried because it's a sentient creature and you don't want to harm even an animal that's sentient. Why would you harm an avatar that's sentient? But that requires that we postulate this idea of sentience in the avatar, which is a pretty big ask when you look at current robots and AI in terms of what they are able to do or not do. There is another way to ask this question, or at least to address the question. What effect does it have on us, the users who do this? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the lesson out of this episode is really important, because even though you can do this, maybe you shouldn't. Because maybe doing that has an effect on you and your own moral character. And that whether or not the avatar feels something or doesn't feel something isn't necessarily the important question. The important question is what permits you to give yourself the permission to engage in this kind of sadistic behavior? And I think that's where the episode really resonates for a lot of online experiences right now, where we don't have sentient avatars. Because the lesson is, well, maybe sentient isn't the important issue here. Maybe the behavior of the player is the important issue.
0: Hey, listeners, I don't ever do this in the podcast, but I'm just going to jump in right here at the beginning of this one to let you know that, as you just heard, there are some dogs barking in the background of this episode I promise you that you're not imagining it. They are IRL dogs. However, I will also assure you that no non-human animals were harmed in the recording of this episode, and they do disappear at some point. So now back to our great conversation with David Gunkel. I'm going to ask this question, and it's a little bit of a devil's advocate question because this is not actually my own position, but I do think that some people might, you know, push back on that and say, but isn't this the kind of same sort of conservative pearl-clutching argument that people have always made about rock music and video games, that violent games make people violent, music makes people violent, when in fact there is actually pretty almost no evidence to demonstrate that's actually true. So that's one question. Does it actually harm someone to play out these kinds of fantasies in a virtual world? But my second question is about the significance of that question, whether or not the virtual avatars are sentient, because it does seem to me an entirely different phenomenon to play out fantasies of harming others and know that the harm is felt by the others than it is to play out fantasies of harming others in some kind of psychological game to whatever, boost one's confidence or cleanse whatever, or this sort of a cathartic way?
1: No, it's a really good question because it goes back to a very old discussion we've been having for decades now, first with television and now with video games, as to whether or not violence begets violence. And the fact is, as you've pointed out, all the studies that have been produced have resulted in inconclusive data. We don't know. Is it cathartic and it releases us of social pressures that need to be acted out? Or is it a causal relationship that violence does cause violence in the real world? And I think that's an important question to ask. And it's one that we you know, need to at least be sensitive to. But the same token, to go to your second point, is that question even an important question? And I think that is something that I think is a deeper question, because I think a lot of cases people will say, maybe we've been asking the wrong question maybe asking whether or not violence causes violence is the wrong question. Maybe the fact that violence is perpetrated in the first place in the virtual world may have already its own consequences. And what it does in the real world is maybe not of much consequence with relationship to what people actually act out or act, you know, permit themselves to do. But I don't have a suitable final answer to this because I think this is a debate that is still ongoing. And it makes sense because this technology is so very new. We don't know what the effect of this is. We have seen this kind of worry with every media that has come out in hundreds of years. We used to worry that violent literature would make people violent. Now today, if our students read anything, it doesn't matter. As long as they're reading, we're happy with it. So I think we're we're at the beginning... Unless it, of, Unless it's the internet and then we're suddenly really worried about it all over again. But I think because this technology, first with video games now, and eventually with augmented and virtual reality, these things are so brand new, we don't know the long-term effects of any of this stuff in any sort of real way. But I do think we have to ask the question, what is actually happening in the virtual world with regards to this activity, and not postpone the question to what happens as a result of that in the real world? Because I think that might be a question that's premature
0: the difference between art forms like television and film and music and even video games as we now experience them, and of course, theater are different in kind and not just, or are different in kind and not just degree from something like a fully immersive virtual experience that we, that I wonder whether or not we can in fact treat that, as theater in, or as an art form, and then apply the classic categories of the catharsis and whatever other emotional or, or intellectual kinds of benefits that we may gain from it, that this idea that we, can, that we live in an alternate reality or that we can experience things in an alternate reality has entirely different moral consequences. So I I think
1: these things reverberate in two directions, both backwards and forwards. So in terms of the way it reverberates in a forward-looking direction, we can ask to what extent does all this theorizing that we've done about tragedy and about theater and about uh, suspension of disbelief and literature, to what extent do all those theories inform what we do and how we make sense of this new immersive experience? and that's sort of trying to apply the past to the future. But I also think there's a way in which this works backwards. That is, this new art form, this new way of creating experience that is simulated and that is immersive, also has a way of helping us to inquire about the way these theories were formed in the first place. Just because Aristotle had a theory of catharsis doesn't mean that it has to work. We may have to rethink that entire theoretical apparatus to try to understand how tragedy functions and the effect that it has on our consciousness and our, on our psyche. So I think the fact that we are asking these questions has to be read in both directions, both how we apply the past to the future and how we apply the future to rethink the past.
0: I do like what you say about, you know, kind of overinflating the relevance or at least the applicability of Aristotle's Theory of Tragedy. I think the same thing can be said of most of psychoanalytic theory as well, you know, that that there are, there are limits to that, you know, critical discourse. So let's imagine that the game and the world as it's presented in USS Callister is real. Do you think that the avatars in the game are moral agents?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So if we take the avatar as it's presented in the episode, and the way that it's it's contextualized. I would say that then the avatar is situated as an agent, that those avatars are able to make choices and make decisions, the big decision being to overthrow their master, obviously. But that is an agential kind of decision-making that occurs by the avatar. It doesn't occur with the real-world people directing their avatar to do these things. The avatars actually do this on their own and rise up in revolt against the oppression that is visited upon them by their overlord.
0: So do you think that the harm that was done to them is primarily harm done in the game? Or do you think that they're revolting for the harm done to the in real life person of which they are a copy? It's a good question because
1: they're clearly aware, the avatars within the games, within the structure of the game and in the structure of the episode, they're clearly aware of the outside world. They know they're clones. So they're very cognizant of the fact that they're copies. They even say we are copies. I think then as a result of that, they probably have, they don't express it, but I think probably it would be part of their way of thinking through the impact of whatever it is they're suffering because They would think it's not just I who am suffering, but I'm empowering Robert Daly to think this way about me in the real world, and what effect would that possibly have?
0: Do you think that Robert Daly thinks of them as, in the way that we currently think about video game avatars, these are not actually real people, I have no moral responsibility to them? He seems like... I do want to go back to the way that you described him, which was pitch perfect, which is that he is, in a way, the kind of poster boy of the IT guy. He's socially awkward. He's a little bit of a loner. He obviously is sexually frustrated and suffers from a kind of million slights and disrespects that he's never actually acted on with any kind of agency and ends up, as you say, taking and playing out himself as this very Captain Kirkish hero and commander in this virtual world. But he doesn't seem like a bad guy in real life. He doesn't seem like a malicious or evil or so it's hard to believe that that he could do these sorts of things in the game. And, and the game is called, wait, is the game called USS Callister?
1: The company is called Callister. The game
0: is called Infinity. So it, yeah, in Infinity, he actually, we have to believe that he does think that Infinity is just a game and the avatars in that game are just super advanced simulations of consciousnesses and not something that might properly be considered a consciousness in itself, like the, pe- the person who designed the game knows that these aren't agents. Let me answer in two ways. One is
1: a sort of film critical way. And the other one is more directly within the game and, and the episode itself. From a film criticism perspective, I think one of the problems with the episode is that it moves very fast. And that it has to telegraph a lot in order to do its exposition of narrative. And I think as a result, some of the motivations of this character get really truncated. And they, they can be brought forward very fast in a way that a film would be able to develop in a little more careful, nuanced approach. And I think for some viewers, that approach to telegraphing his emotions and his behavior was a little unbelievable in terms of its portrayal. But that's probably more to do with the fact that this is an hour episode. Actually, it's a 76-minute episode, but close to an hour. And you didn't have, <laughs> you didn't have two hours to work this out. A yeah. more careful exhibition exposition of his character, I think, would have made this a little more believable in terms of how he acts. Now, that said, there is a really interesting insight that is being portrayed in his character. It's a two twofold thing. One is his real-life character is an incredibly passive character kind of object. He doesn't really take much responsibility for anything in his world. He, people act on him and he's the receiver of people taunting him, people doing things against him, whatever. He's not very active in his life. And so he finds his way to be an active agent in the game. And I think this does speak to a lot of experiences of, especially adolescents, but not just adolescents, adults too, who feel very impotent in their real-life existence and are able to find expression of agency in games, and that we shouldn't be too quick to write that off. Now, in his case, with Doyle, Daily, in his case, it's sadistic, right? So it's, it, it turns bad. But this idea of being able to be an agent in another realm, I think, is something that people have found very satisfying with regards to their own sort of personal experience
0: let me just ask you don't forget your thought because i just want to ask you really quick do you do you think it's sadistic in his case because we know or at least you and i believe that the objects of his sadism are sentient conscious beings or do you think that it would be sadistic even if he was playing with g.i. joe's yeah, no, it's, that's a good question, and
1: I want to come back to that question because it's okay, okay, okay. a really important <laughs> question. Because I think the way the I think the way the episode works is that it really pivots on that decision. You have to be able to make that twist in your thinking mm-hmm. in order for this thing to be um, able to play out the way that it does. Because if if you watch the episode and you say to yourself, oh, "Those aren't real people," so who cares? Mm-hmm. Then right. nothing works in terms of the narrative. And the way that the narrative really manipulates us or persuades us is to make that little twist where we begin to believe that the avatars are sentient. And it does it in a very subtle way. And I think it works well. Otherwise, the episode would fall apart. But we can come back to that. I think it's an important question. The other thing I want to say about the character of Robert Daly is he also, I think, shows us something that we don't often recognize in our sort of tech mythology. Now, our tech mythologies of the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs and the Steve Wozniak is there are all these geeks who got beat up in high school, and then they took over the world and yeah. gave us all this wonderful stuff. But we forget that sometimes the people who are bullied turn into bullies in other domains yeah. as a way of, of dealing with the fact that they were bullied. They don't necessarily produce an iPod <laughs> or an iPad. They, right, they, they, may, right. they may turn into something that is a mirror image of their victimhood in being a bully towards someone else. And I think that is a social phenomenon that we often don't in our tech narratives about these great inventors and these garage entrepreneurs. But I do think that the character of Robert Daly does show us this, that there is a way in which this isn't just benign. There's a way that people who are bullied can also turn into bullies in another dimension. In this case, the the other dimension is a video game. There is this sort of phenomenon that I think is important psychologically to deal with regards to the questions of bullying and bully.
0: There was a piece in The Verge, I think it was written by Nick Stahl, it was a review of USS Callister, and he basically made the argument that what this episode was about was showing us that all of the kind of nightmares that we had about some super intelligent ai taking us over and making us suffer or destroying us are not half as frightening as what is in his in his argument anyway much more likely to happen which is some emotionally stunted tech exec that has sociopathic tendencies and is drunk on power, creating a game that gives him a way of playing make-believe and working out all of his needs, social needs, and in real life and translating them to some sort of game. I think that is an interesting read of the episode, that Mm -hmm. it is replacing the classic sci-fi alien or monster or robot AI with... Just a regular human being that actually probably will have these kinds of powers should they ever come about. I also want to say that Jesse Plemons, who is the guy who plays Robert Daly in this episode, is fantastic. If you were a fan of Friday Night Lights, that's where I originally remembered him from. It was a football, Texas football series. But he also played uh, a character in some of the later seasons of Breaking Bad. But he's absolutely pitch perfect in this episode as being able to really play two characters. On the one hand, his in real life, awkward, stumbling, fumbling character. And then this melodramatic, hero-type, Captain Kirk character. And he goes so far as to adopt this really unidentifiable accent and completely idiosyncratic kind of pacing of his words. That is very reminiscent of early William Shatner in, in Star Trek, so.
1: I, I had read that when he was cast, and that when he was cast, they were thinking of him from the beginning. Like the entire episode was organized wow. around him, which I think is very smart casting because he's perfect. You're exactly right. Yeah. But after he was cast, he's watched a lot of Kirk. He watched a lot of Star Trek and yeah. really learned how to manipulate the Kirk sensibility and then the Kirk bravado and everything else. And I think he does it on the episode in a way that's absolutely on target. He just really (laughs) delivers that Captain Kirk-esque kind of character in a way that only Shatner can do. And and he does it so extremely well as his uh, character in the star, uh, what is it, Uh, Space Fleet.
0: (laughs) And he manages to do it in a way that is, you know, it's slightly funny because it's familiar to us. And so it keeps this kind of low-key, sinister uneasiness about the whole episode. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be funny or not, right? right? Right. Yeah, no, And. Yeah, which is actually, I think, a really interesting artistic choice because what the episode really is about is I'm not really sure if this is a moral dilemma or not. Like, I'm not sure if this is fun, if this is a game, or if this is real life, if this is a real philosophical moral problem. And so much about the episode, I think, really just reinforces that.
1: And I think it speaks to the strength of the writing because they don't play it for cheap laughs. You could see this being done very campy. And being very sort of everyone winking and nodding and ha isn't this funny. Um, you're exactly right. It, it, you don't quite know how to register the comedy. And I think that makes it even more interesting because at one and the same time, it's funny and disturbing. And I think that's what makes it really
0: a powerful piece. Yeah, I do want to say one thing about the episode that is campy and that I do actually think is a great strength of the episode. And that has to do with the performance by the actress who plays Nanette. One of the things that she does that's really great in this episode and is totally absent from the original Star Trek for anyone who watched the original Star Trek is that the original Star Trek was, of course, melodramatic and campy without any kind of self-awareness at all. And what she does in this episode is when she appears in the virtual world and is still figuring out what has happened to her and where she is now, and is watching this play out, her first kind of initial reactions to being in the game as a character in the game is this kind of eye roll, like epic eye roll. Are you like, are you serious? And that is, of course, what was missing from Star Trek for the whole run of the series was one person standing behind Captain Kirk or Spock and rolling their eyes. But I do think that what it manages to accomplish in this episode is it really does bring to the forefront the kind of gender politics of the episode, oh, yeah. how the episode is really trying to tell us a story about toxic masculinity, about the role or you know, the lack of role of women, both creatively and technically in the tech industry. So I was wondering if you wanted to comment on any of that, sort of the gender politics of the episode.
1: So I want to comment on both the gender politics and then the racial politics, because I think it does a good job with gender politics. I don't think it does a very good job with the racial politics. So in terms of the gender politics, I think you're exactly right. Nanette, as she stands behind the captain and rolls her eyes, it's perfect. It's exactly what you do as a viewer watching the old Star Trek episodes. You're like, oh, God, now Kirk is going to make out with the alien again. And enough, <laughs> he does. He makes out with the, you know, the, so Daly also makes out with the other female members of the crew. And so it is that eye roll that I think is really a, a, an interesting way of commenting on The fact that we've all been rolling our eyes at this and yet we've been pretty much complicit in our science fiction being full of toxic masculinity in many ways and so i think there's a very nice way in which that sort of confronts that with some sort of critical response i also think that the fact that she is the active individual involved in the revolt is an important twist in the standard sort of science fiction story because she's the one that actually is taking the ability to organize everyone else into revolting against the captain and taking control of their future and and their destiny. So I think there's a way that also speaks to the marginalization of the female characters so often in the older science fiction. Now, where I don't think the episode does very well is with the racial politics. There is one African-American... Uh, member of the crew and, and one either Indian or Pakistani member of the crew. But their position in the crew is always as it is in the original Star Trek, sort of support characters. In fact, the African-American character is almost like a comic sidekick, which then is yeah. back to the old buddy movie where the African-American detective is the sidekick. And so I think what it gains in its gender politics, it maybe sacrifices in its racial politics. Now, again, it's one episode, and we can't ask it to do everything. But I do think if we're looking at it critically, we'd have to say, yeah, it gets one piece of that puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle, it doesn't do so well with.
0: Actually, there are two African-American uh, members of the crew, one one male and one female. That's right, yeah. And then an Indian-American member of the crew, and then a kind of Eastern European member of the crew whose skin color has actually changed in the virtual game. Cool. So actually the whole crew, with the exception of the Scotty character, the sidekick, the sort of lieutenant or whatever his role is, second in command guy, who is of course a white man and this white woman who comes in at the end. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I agree with you. It is much worse on the racial politics and on the gender politics. Although I will also say that one of the things that I really like about the way that it plays out the revolt of Nanette and her using the crew to get themselves out of the game is that she ultimately ends up outsmarting Daly. She's the one that actually hacks the game. And so we have to recognize that she has a kind of technical skill that has gone unrecognized by even the people closest to her. I think this revolt
1: thing is important too, because in, in our science fiction, all of our robot stories, not all of them, but a good deal of them, are robot revolt stories. That The first right. robot story, which is R.U.R. from Carl Chapik, is about the robots being put into servitude to human beings, and they rise up against and take over, and, and they revolt against their human masters. And we see this again and again, Battlestar Galactica, Blade Runner, and now this episode. So the, the trajectory of this narrative where there is the sentient avatar uprising is akin to the robot uprising that we told ourselves time and again in our robot stories.
0: Yeah, so since we're going into the more of the science fiction of it, I do want to talk uh, for a second about one of the things that I think is sitting in the background of this episode, and that is the whole Roko's Basilisk experiment, this idea that it's possible that in the future we could be able to create an AI that then, I don't know if I want to Actually, scratch that, because I think that's going to take us like 20 minutes to just even explain Rocco's Basilisk. Okay, forget I even said that. Okay. Where would you like to go next?
1: (laughs) I think one thing that I've not heard anyone ever talk about with this episode, or very few people talk about, is the fact that the avatars are genderless, right? They have no genitals. And there's that, you know, sort of display that the second in command makes where he pulls his pants down and shows himself to be like a G.I. Joe or a Barbie doll without any genitalia. And I've often wondered why that was a decision on the writer's part, because clearly Robert Daly is a sexually frustrated man. And why would he create avatars in his world where he has total control in such a way as to not give them genitalia. And I think that's a really interesting decision that was made in the you know creation of these avatars.
0: Isn't it because he's a sexually frustrated man that he has to create sexual beings that he can control but that he doesn't have to sexually interact with to an extent that might reveal him as inexperienced or unaccomplished sexually? Because he does, yeah. you know, he gives the women in the crew these sort of dip for ballroom kisses that are, of course, very reminiscent of the way that Captain Kirk would do it. But he never actually has sex with any of them. He can't. But there's this idea that he can appear as the dashing, handsome lead without actually having to perform. And that seems to be what, in real life, is his problem, is that he can't, perform. He can't speak up for himself. He can't own his own accomplishments. He can't stand up to his bullies. He can't speak to the cute girl in the office.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because I had a very similar kind of thought about it moving in two different directions. One is that even though he is in total control of the environment where he is lord over all these avatars, he is so repressed sexually that he can't create avatars with genitalia because that is something that he probably can't Face that he can't fathom or can't deal with. And that would be him losing control over his construct. So I think that's one possible read. A more psychoanalytical read would be because the individual who is displayed as lacking genitals is the second in command, who is also the clone of the uh, chief executive officer of the company. It's a moment of castration. He's able to render him impotent by removing his genitalia. And so there might be a way in which that plays on a more psychoanalytical level as a castration of the father figure.
0: Yeah, and it now occurs to me that there are two other male characters on the crew. One is Indian-American and one is African-American. And the only other one that comments on having no genitalia is the African-American crew member, which would also be a kind of power display on Daly's part as a white man to sort of castrate the uh, African-American man. Yeah, man, the the racial politics are really bad. The racial politics are really bad. (laughs) They're getting getting worse as we talk. And and to add to how
1: bad they are, the only moment at which the African-American character sort of comments on genitalia is after they emerge from the revolt and they recognize that they have genitalia. And he's the character who pulls his pants out, looks in his pants, and nods with some sort of satisfaction.
0: Yeah, as if that's all he is. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So this is where the racial politics get really troublesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, Yeah. Sorry. Yes, yeah, okay, you didn't write it. <laughs> I want to talk about the ending. So you said that this is the one of the few Black Mirror episodes that has a happy ending, and I'm wondering if you th- are characterizing it as a happy ending primarily because the bad guy loses and the good guys win or the good girls in this case win or If there are other reasons that you think it's more optimistic or happy. So I would separate happy from optimistic. I think those
1: are different. Um, It's happy insofar as exactly you described it. The the bad guy is put in his place and the avatars are released from their captivity and all all is well. Things are returned to status quo. So that's a standard Hollywood ending. You get some conflict. It's terrible. It's horrible. And yet the good guys win. And that that was the payoff. Optimistic is a different adjective (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I don't think it's necessarily optimistic. I think there's a way in which the narrative is satisfying in the sort of Hollywood sense. But I don't know that this is necessarily an optimistic story. I think it does raise some very important questions having to do with how we interact in the virtual worlds that we are part of and that we create and what the effect of our behaviors are with regards to how we respond to others in digital form, whether they be sentient avatars or just representatives of of other users. And I think that is still today a very complicated question that we don't really have good answers for. And if you look at how things have evolved, it seems we've gotten worse with regards to our behaviors online towards one, one another. With online and cyberbullying really becoming much more prominent in a lot of people's experiences.
0: Yeah, and there is a kind of hilarious nod to that at the very end. So at the end, the all the players on this spaceship have escaped daily and warp through space and time and end up realizing that they're now in the cloud and they have no restrictions, that they're out of daily's mod and they can go anywhere that they want. And immediately they encounter this kind of voice that's like reply guy on Twitter that who's actually voiced by the actor who played Jesse on Breaking yeah. Bad, which is the absolute perfect voice to use, who's send me pics or what do you have to trade or something like that? And then let's get out of here or send me something or I'll destroy you. And they just move on, which by the way, for listeners, that's the way to deal with trolls, <laughs> you know, just fly to another part of the space, but. That part of the ending really does make me want to say that it's not only a happy ending, but also an optimistic ending. I'm a little bit less pessimistic about the future possibility of something like uploading our consciousnesses to the cloud. But if such a thing were possible, I hope it is something like the end of this episode where there's a tremendous amount of freedom and very few restrictions on where you can go and what kinds of virtual worlds you can live out. I was actually just talking just a few days ago for this podcast to John Danaher, that episode, I don't know if that episode will come out before yours or not, but I was talking to John Danaher and this is one of the kind of arguments he makes in his book, Automation and Utopia, is that there would be a kind of human flourishing to be able to exist in virtual worlds where we have many virtual worlds that we can play in many different roles and we could develop and flourish in that way. And I do think that there's a kind of nod to something like that at the end of this episode. Yeah, I might want to say that it is both good and both happy and optimistic, but that's of course entirely contingent on you not being an asshole the, the guy who ends up floating through dark and empty space alone, which is Daly's fate. Can I give you a reading just a little twist? Okay, do so,
1: it. Go. So, so they escape from one troll, right? they escaped from robert daly and, and his oppression in in the virtual world and they only escape to be encountering another troll <laughs>
0: but okay it, but kind of a
1: benign troll compared to what the daily experience was
0: and that to me is not a bug that's a no, feature a of a life an interesting life for sentient consciousness is that it's going to meet resistance and it's going to meet, you know, challenges and frustrations, but that none of them are going to be totalizing right. authoritarian, you know, forces, which is what Daly was. And so and yeah. The difference is, is when they meet the second troll, they can just walk away, which they yeah. couldn't
1: do under Daly's. Oppression. So there's that that important difference.
0: And interestingly, is what Daly couldn't do in real life just walk away from these, you know, sort of petty offenses that are always happening to him or that he perceives as always happening to him. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our episode notes at Read Write More, Be More com. That's Read More, Write Be More com, where we'll provide not only more information about today's guest, but also a list of links to books, articles, and other ideas referenced in this episode. Now, back to the conversation. So let me ask you a question. Would you play a game like this? Sure, I'd love to play a game like this. (laughs) Why not? This seems like interesting. Yeah. Would would you be a proponent of developing games like this? I'm talking about games that include virtual beings that are in every way, except for having a body, indistinguishable from what we call persons. So it's funny because in, in a way we're already there, not in
1: the way that it's picturing for us in the episode. But we are already in a situation where we encounter others in the virtual world where we are not certain whether the other that we are encountering is the proxy of a human user or an AI-generated bot. And the inability to distinguish the one from the other opens up, I think, a very wide moral chasm about how we decide to respond in the face of these challenges that present themselves in the virtual world when we don't know what is behind the avatar.
0: I think you're exactly right. And I also think that's all the more reason to err on the side of excessive humanity, <laughs> right? Err on the side yeah. of granting moral agency and moral patiency, maybe where it isn't earned just in case. I So I, I do a lot of this
1: with my students, obviously. We, we spend time in video games. We make avatars and we talk about avatars and about the, the sort of bot-controlled avatar versus the human proxy and this sort of stuff. And I had one student do a little sort of online exercise with us. And somebody started abusing this student because they were convinced that the student was a bot. Yeah. He came away from the experience, I don't want to say damaged, but he came away from the experience really quite disturbed that somebody would have made the decision that he was a bot and as a result, could do whatever they wanted, and whether or not he saw these things that were being said or experienced these things that were being perpetrated didn't seem to matter to this other individual that was engaged with the interaction. And uh, I think that speaks exactly to this point that you're making, that it's probably best to err on the side of being overly humane just because of the fact that you don't often know what is behind the uh, virtual space that we encounter.
0: Yeah. And just to return to the comments that you opened with these kinds of questions and this episode in particular really do again, reinforce the way that the series serves as a, as a black mirror. The the real question is not what's on the other side of the screen. Is it real people? Are they real agents? Do I actually owe them anything? The question is what kind of person am I in this encounter, even in asking these questions?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think Part of what we need to do is learn to be a little more superficial in the way that we deal with these things. I think oftentimes we're looking for the profound message behind the scenes. And I think the more profound message that we get out of these things is in what is confronting us right in our face about uh, ourselves and the way that the mirror reflects back to us certain things about our own expectations, our own assumptions and our own sets of behaviors.
0: listeners this is just a quick reminder that you can keep up with all of the new black mirror reflections episodes by following us on twitter at bmr underscore podcast that's at bmr underscore podcast now back to the conversation So David, we're running up against our time here. So I wanted to ask you three questions that I ask everyone at the end of the episode. I'm gonna put them to you all at once and then you can answer that all at once, okay? So the first question is, what do you think is the lesson of USS Callister? The second question is what about this episode or the world of this episode or the technology or the moral or philosophical questions that are raised in this episode What worries you or concerns you, or maybe even scares you the most? And then the third question is, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a utopia, where do you think USS Callister, the world of USS Callister falls? Okay, go.
1: Go, right. Okay, so (laughs) what is the lesson of the USS Callister episode? Uh, One lesson is don't be an asshole. But that's a pretty simple one. But I I do think the the more uh, important lesson out of the episode is that the move that we are making into virtual environments that started with the massively multiplayer online role playing games with profiles that we create on social media, and now eventually with virtual reality avatars where we are fully embodied uh, creatures of digital sorts in the virtual environment. I think raises very important questions about how we comport ourselves in relationship to these social worlds. I think oftentimes we look at these as just games or escapism or playthings, but I think these are real social environments populated by real beings. And we have got to be, I think, very sensitive to how we not only port our bodies and our minds into these virtual environments, but how we port our values how we port our notions of morality of legality of social interaction and we don't have the rule book for that we're inventing it as we go and you know that means that we will have hiccups and problems but it also means we have great opportunity and I think there are great ways in which we can reinvent these things and rethink these things uh, for the future that will not only matter in the game world but will also matter in the real world and I think that's a, probably the most important lesson out of the callister experience now what worries or concerns do i have about the USS Callister. We already talked about the racial politics. I think that has been something that had, you know, really been on my mind when i watched the episode for the first time and i think it's something that speaks to some problems that need to be addressed because science fiction has had very poor racial politics. Star Trek is not alone in this. So there's a lot of series films where we see this played out. I also am concerned that people will look at the episode and dismiss it as, well, that's all future, right? This is all future stuff, because we don't yet have these games like Infinity. We don't have the ability to create digital clones that are sentient. And so there's a way in which you can dismiss a lot of the challenges that are in the story as future. And I think we do that with a lot of science fiction. We think science fiction is about predicting the future. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Science fiction is about grappling with the present by projecting the consequences on the screen of the future. And I think a lot of the questions that bubbled to the surface in the USS Callister episode are problems we're facing right now. Problems having to do with games and gender politics, problems having to do with virtual versus real, and problems have, having to do with how we recognize or deal with the representatives of ourselves in avatar form and how we respond and interact with them in the virtual environment extending all the way back to the rape in cyberspace, now to our experiences in multiplayer games and beyond. All right, lastly, on a scale of one to 10 with one being dystopic and 10 being utopic, where does the world of the USS Callister fall? I think as you and I have discussed, not only does it have a happy ending, it has a rather optimistic ending in terms of how we can be agents of change in our experiences with this technology. So I would put it around seven. I wouldn't say it's overly, like, it's it's not crazy, everything's wonderful, but I do think there is a leaning in a direction of a more optimistic way of looking at the possibilities that uh, confront us with these technologies.
0: Yes, I totally agree with you on the more optimistic ranking of this episode as well. And thanks for also reminding me that it was a Christmas episode. I feel like yeah. I feel like now I'm going to replace Die Hard and this is going to be my new favorite Christmas movies. It, it's um, so funny because
1: I forgot it was a Christmas episode too. And in preparation for us talking, I watched it again. And we were watching it, my family and I, and we're like, wait a minute, this is a Christmas episode.
0: David, thanks so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me. A big fan of yours. So I'm super honored to have had you on the podcast and hopefully I can invite you to come back again sometime.
1: No, it's been really fun talking to you and really enjoyable being on the episode. And I got to say, for this idea, I love it. I think we've done a lot of these pop culture and philosophy books, like Philosophy in the Matrix and Philosophy in Battlestar Galactica, whatever. But I think this is a venue that is way better suited to this kind of engagement. And I really appreciate what you're doing with it. And I really look forward to where it goes and how it develops over time.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, you heard that straight from David Uncle's mouth. Subscribe to Black Mirror Reflections Podcast. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Please listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you regularly download your podcasts. And don't forget to recommend us to a friend. Thanks for listening, and until next time, read more, write more, think more, and be more.